Welcome everyone to this episode of the Planet Pantry Podcast, a show about all of the pantry staples that people reach for every day to make the foods they love. This week, we're continuing our series on dairy products. Last week, we explored how milk is produced, and we also looked at many of the different animals which produce milk and how they differ. And in this episode, we're going to be looking at butter, a fundamental staple of some of the world's great food cultures. We might think of butter as a pretty straightforward thing, but there is a lot of cultural significance behind it, and there are many different types of butter used by people all over the world. So get some cream in a bottle and start shaking, and by the end of this episode, you might have some butter and a few new ideas of what to do with it. So as we saw last week, there are many different kinds of milk out there, and all of them can be made into butter. But for simplicity's sake, we're going to start by defining what butter is by using that which is derived from cow's milk as an example. Most of this information should apply across the board, but we'll stick with cow's milk to avoid getting off on too many tangents. Although we will be getting into some of those other butters in a little bit. So let's say you've got some milk fresh from a cow. At base level, this is what we see in grocery stores as whole milk, and it contains roughly 3.5% fat. A full 87% of your whole milk is water, and a further 9-ish percent is what many refer to as solids non-fat. That is everything else that isn't water or fat. This includes whey, casein, and lactose, among many other things. Most of the milk we buy in grocery stores has undergone the pasteurization process that we touched on in the last episode, as well as a process of homogenization. You'll notice that the milk you have in your fridge right now is likely labeled as homogenized. I'm not going to go too much into the nitty-gritty of milk fats and their structures, but I will link a couple of papers in the show notes which can do a much better job than I can in explaining that stuff. But basically, milk fats come in the form of little globules, which you can imagine as little balls of fat suspended in your milk. These balls come in many different sizes, and because of this, some will eventually rise above the rest, causing the milk to separate. Consumers don't like their milk separating, it looks weird, and then you have to shake it, and that's just not efficient enough for modern society. But in 1899, Auguste Gaulin discovered that by pressing milk through small holes at high pressure, you can make these fat globules smaller and more uniform in size. Pasteurization allowed milk to be stored for long periods of time without welcoming dangerous pathogens to live in it, and homogenization allowed it to be stored for long periods of time while maintaining a uniform, creamy consistency. But that makes it nearly impossible to produce butter out of homogenized milk. If you get your milk straight from the cow or from one of those trendy new old-fashioned dairies and leave it out for a while, the fat will inevitably rise to the top and many of the non-fat milk solids will remain suspended in the water underneath. If you skim that fat off, you're left with cream and skim milk. Doing this to various degrees is how we obtain reduced fat, low fat, and skim milk, which all contain somewhere from near 0% fat to around 2% and the cream which we skimmed off the top can be anywhere from around 20 to 40% fat, give or take, and depending on what the maker intended to do with it. This fat exists as globules, or again, little balls suspended in the milk. These globules are little packages of fat molecules surrounded by membranes of protein and phospholipids, which help them stay suspended in the liquid. If you shake up your cream, those little fat packages start to bump into each other, 
and their membranes start to break up, releasing the fat molecules which, without their protective coverings, will clump together and make butter. This is a great thing to do at home, not only because homemade butter is delicious, but also because it's a great proof of concept for some cool chemistry ideas. And the liquid that's left over is buttermilk, which has plenty of applications in its own right. And the best part is that this doesn't even require any kind of special equipment. You can shake it up in a bottle if you want. It would be a lot of work, but plenty of people do it every day. You've probably seen a butter churn in cartoons or in a museum, and that's pretty much just a barrel full of milk and a paddle to make this a little bit more efficient. But with modern technology, this can be an effortless process. You can use a food processor, an electric mixer, or a variety of other common household appliances. Just do the same thing as if you were making whipped cream, but keep going after you reach that stage. It might take a while, but it will eventually separate. And after you have your ball of butter and your buttermilk, just separate them and wash your butter ball in a bowl of ice water to get those last bits of buttermilk out, and that'll make it last a little longer. Now with all of that out of the way, let's take a look at how long people have been doing this for. So, as we saw last week, the first milk-producing animals to be domesticated were goats and soon after sheep. Cows weren't too far behind, but the first butter was likely made with goat's milk and would have been pretty different from what we're familiar with today. For one thing, a device called a cream separator wasn't invented until the late 19th century. This machine separated the cream from the milk through centrifugal force produced by a hand crank. Before this invention, milk would be left in shallow troughs for around 18 hours so the cream would rise to the top, ready to be skimmed by hand. Leaving milk out at ambient temperature for that long allows lactic acid bacteria to ferment, producing a tang which many people actually seek out today. This is effectively what you might find at a grocery store labeled as cultured butter. And you can make it yourself at home pretty easily by adding some kefir, kombucha, or other starter to your cream and leaving it out for about a day before going about the regular butter making process. And it'll also yield you some delicious cultured buttermilk. But getting back to the history of butter as it likely began with goats, this stuff predates any kind of recorded history so people have to assume its origins to some extent. The story that you often find browsing the web goes that an early goat herder would likely at some point have milked his goats and stored that milk in a goatskin flask, where it might have been left out for a few hours, allowing the milk to separate. He then may have woken up in the morning and started his herd towards the next grazing spot, carrying his flask of milk along with him. After traveling all that distance, he might have found that some of his milk had separated to form a solid ball of fat. It probably didn't smell that bad, so from there it would simply be a matter of some mild adventure in tasting the stuff for the herder to realize that they were onto something. This story is kind of a historical placeholder born out of a lack of information from this early time to create a clear picture as to how and when butter first got made. But it's not an uneducated guess. We do have evidence of people using these goatskin bags to shake up some butter and they even eventually refine their methods by tying larger sacks to a tripod and then rocking them back and forth in order to speed up the process. This method is still used today by some tribal communities in northern Africa. 
But regardless of how and when this first happened, it was likely around modern-day Iran where goats and sheep were first domesticated. But this is no guarantee. We talked last week about the Chang people of the Tibetan Plateau and how their domestication of yaks occurred around the same time, if not earlier, as that of goats in the Middle East. By around 2500 BCE, many of the animals which produce milk today had been domesticated and ancient Sumerians were using clay pots with plungers similar to the butter churns which were used until not that long ago, and many people in Africa were churning their butter in hollowed out gourds. In its early days, dairy culture thrived mostly in the northern parts of Europe and Asia where nomadic tribes were comfortable working as herders, where these animals were most happy, and where dairy products could last longer. Remember that natural processes play out faster in warmer temperatures, so while northern Europeans enjoyed dairy, people like the classical Greeks and Romans along the Mediterranean were happier with their olive oil, especially since cows didn't do so well at grazing in the southern regions. Many of these people saw butter as the inferior food of northern barbarians at the time. Although butter did have uses outside of food, and it was used as a cosmetic product or as a healing balm in some cases, it would be a while before these regions adopted it into their cooking. Much later in the 16th century Europe, Martin Luther published his 95 Theses. Many believe this was the start of the Catholic Reformation, which brought about Protestantism, one of the three main branches of Christianity today. This Reformation was largely brought about by what were seen as corrupt practices by the Catholic Church, which allowed some sins to be forgiven through special prayers or donations to the Church. Butter presents a great example of this frustration as it played a big role in the diets of Northern Europeans and was banned for much of the year by the Church, with convenient exceptions. I don't think anyone would argue that butter was the cause of Reformation but all of these major historical changes have so many details and so much nuance. There were so many factors that caused the Catholic Reformation, but butter was definitely among the many straws that broke the camel's back. And the importance of butter in this event which has ripples across history and into the modern era is summed up pretty well by Martin Luther himself when he said, For at Rome they themselves laugh at the fasts making us foreigners eat the oil with which they would not grease their shoes, and afterwards selling us liberty to eat butter and all sorts of things. Thinking to eat butter is a greater sin than to lie, to swear, or even to live unchastely. Many of us in the more privileged parts of the modern world see butter as a luxury item, something that can add infinite value to so many dishes, but that we could ultimately do without given our large selection of cooking oils and animal fats. But at the time of Martin Luther, Many of the people in these colder parts of Europe relied on butter as a source of calories, fat, and nutrients. This is the case in many places, including the parts of China, India, Nepal, and Tibet, which consume yak's milk and butter. Yak butter is especially important to the nomadic people who inhabit the high elevation plateaus of Tibet and Nepal. In these places, it's often consumed in tea, which has many local preparations, but almost always involves puer, a fermented black tea, salt, and yak butter. Different ratios are used and often include milk curds, barley flour, and other additions, sometimes to suit the local needs and sometimes depending on availability since yak's milk is mostly only obtained for a small portion of the year and can be pretty expensive. A dough called sampa is also made with butter, tea, and barley flour for a quick calorie-dense meal. 
The fat and calories provide a diet that is necessary for people who spend a lot of time in extreme cold and at high altitudes. In addition to this high value attributed to yak's milk and butter, the Tibetans have an amazing and unique application for it in their culture. A story goes that during Ming Dynasty China in the early 15th century, Princess Wan Chang brought a statue of a young Buddha to Tibet, and the monks wanted to present her with flowers as thanks. But flowers didn't grow in the cold mountainous region, so they carved some out of dree butter. Another story tells of the great Buddhist teacher Tsongkhapa, awakening from a dream in which he saw withering plants become flowers and thorny bushes grow lamps with countless diamonds. He had ordered the lamas to reconstruct his dream in the material world and they did so by sculpting it out of butter. Regardless of how this came about, the Tibetan Buddhist tradition of sculpting intricate and beautiful scenes out of butter, which is often colored with a variety of bright pigments, lives on today. These sculptures are immensely beautiful, but in line with Buddhist teachings, this beauty is temporary, and no matter what is done to extend the life of these amazing works, they will eventually disappear or be melted down and fed to animals. This is one example of what becomes a theme in many places and especially in Eastern philosophies in which milk-producing animals are revered for their generous nature. Many of us have likely heard of the way in which cows and their milk products are revered throughout India, both in Buddhist and Hindu traditions. I am not even going to try to dissect the Hindu beliefs around cattle. Hinduism is one of the world's oldest religions and it has a rich, complicated, and often controversial history. It's fascinating and I have begun to read about it here and there over time, but I just don't feel like I'm able to talk about the role of cows specifically. There's just so much that would have to be boiled down to fit into this podcast, and I don't think that I'm in a position to do that. I will, however, link some materials to read about this aspect of Hinduism and related religions in the show notes if anybody wants a concise description of this subject. But what I will say on this topic is that it is a common misconception that cows are revered as literal gods in Hinduism. Rather, they are associated with some holy figures including Aditi, the Vedic mother of the gods. Aditi does a lot. She supports the sky, represents infinite universal expanse, and nourishes the earth. And it's in this nourishing capacity that she is sometimes represented by a cow. This generous nature is associated with cows in many cultures, but especially in Hindu culture, where they are also associated with the Brahmin, Hinduism's highest priestly caste, and are celebrated through a variety of Vedic rituals, which often involve the burning of ghee. I've linked to an article which goes over to the significance of a daily ritual involving the burning of ghee in the show notes. But the use of ghee goes beyond religious tradition and extends into the everyday cooking of people both religious and non-religious throughout India, as well as many other places around the world. Ghee is similar to what many of us know as clarified butter from some classic Western culinary traditions, including the famous Escoffier school of French cooking, but they're not exactly the same and we'll explore what makes them different right after this. So as I've mentioned before, butter is not pure fat. It contains non-fat solids and water as well. This makes it far from ideal as a cooking fat in many applications. Take the searing of a steak for example. 
In order to get that beautiful crust that many of us want on a good piece of meat, we need to heat our pan to a very high temperature. Any cooking video will tell you to heat your pan until it starts to smoke, and this happens at different stages for different fats. The value that determines this is known as the smoke point. Every fat starts to smoke at one point or another, and if you let it smoke too much, the oil might burn, lending to off flavors or it might even ignite when you throw your meat in. Butter is one of the worst candidates for cooking at high temperatures. Long before you could heat your butter to the temperatures needed for something like searing a steak properly, the non-fat solids will have burned. Your nice creamy butter will turn into a nasty dark liquid with lots of black flecks floating around, and your pan will be producing more than enough smoke to set off any fire alarm. The smoke point of butter is only about 200 to 250 degrees Fahrenheit or 120 to 150 C barely above the boiling point of water and far from sufficient for high temperature cooking. Common cooking oils like vegetable or canola oil have a smoke point of around 400 Fahrenheit or 205 degrees C, but you can improve the smoke point of butter by clarifying it, and this is a pretty simple process. All you have to do is heat your butter over a low temperature. The solids will then rise to the top in a foam and you can skim them off. Some will rest at the bottom of the pot and you can slowly pour your skimmed butter in such a way that those particles stay in the bottom and boom, you have clarified butter, which now has a smoke point of 485 Fahrenheit or 250 C, even better than vegetable oil. If instead of skimming the solids off, you let the butter continue to cook at a low temperature, the solids will start to brown. This is a careful process and if you do it right and with patience, you'll be rewarded with butter which has a beautiful nutty flavor. This is brown butter and it brings a beautiful flavor to all sorts of sauces, dishes, and baked goods. Replace the butter in your chocolate chip cookies with brown butter and a little bit of water to compensate for what was lost in the cooking and thank me later. Now ghee is clarified butter but during the clarification process the solids are generally allowed to brown just slightly to add a little bit of that nutty flavor, but not in a super obvious way. Ghee or clarified butter are great cooking fats. It's generally considered a pretty fancy over-the-top thing to clarify butter at home, and the ghee that you find in the organic sections of American grocery stores is pretty expensive for a small amount. But if you go to an Indian grocery, you can often find it for a much more reasonable price. You can also make a bigger amount in advance. Just buy a couple of pounds of butter, Clarify it and put it in your fridge. It'll last for quite a while. You may have noticed by now that clarified butter is especially popular in warmer regions of the world, and that is, at least in part, because clarified butter lasts longer than freshly churned butter. You might remember from our episode on instant noodles that by removing water from something, it makes it much harder for the various microorganisms which cause spoilage to spread. And since fermentation happens at a faster pace in warmer environments, Butter spoiling is especially an issue for our friends closer to the equator. But sometimes you might want to ferment your butter, and if you find yourself in this position, I refer you to Moroccan Smen. Again, as we've explored before, fermentation is a desirable trait if it's controlled. If you just put something out, it'll spoil, but if you take proper precautions, it will have the opposite effect of making things taste better and last longer. Smen is generally made from goats, sheep, or cow's milk, and it has a cheesy sort of aroma. It's the result of encouraging the growth of lactic acid-producing bacteria in the butter. 
The lactic acid produced in these bacteria preserves the butter and prevents it from spoiling. It's said that Smen gets better with age too, and apparently there's a bear bear legend that some men would bury a pot of Smen on the day of their daughter's birth and dig it up on the day of her wedding. Another version of clarified butter that is just pure genius out of Ethiopia and Eritrea is Niter Kibe, which is often infused with a ton of amazing spices including onions, garlic, ginger, coriander, cumin, fenugreek, cinnamon, and more. And in addition to these quite common and accessible ingredients, this recipe also calls for a handful of spices unique to this region, including besobella, kosaret, and korarima. It's hard to substitute besobella and kosaret, but you might be able to get away with using black cardamom in place of korarima, which is a kind of black cardamom native to Eastern Africa. These ingredients can often be hard to find online, but if you have an Ethiopian restaurant near you, they might be willing to help you out. Most of what I've discussed today was really a humbling lesson to me when I was exploring the world of clarified butter early on in my career. I thought, okay, clarified butter is something simple, I've used it in a lot of kitchens, and it's pretty straightforward. Is there anything I can do to elevate it a bit? I thought I was all clever when I decided to throw some spices in while I clarified it, but it turns out that Ethiopian chefs and home cooks have been doing this for a very long time. They've mastered an amazing spice blend and it's used in a lot of dishes, including the famous Doro Wat. Well, what if I ferment it? That sounds original. But no, Moroccan people and others perfected that a very long time ago as well. Something I learned very on in my work in professional kitchens is that you will never learn everything and that it's dangerous to think that you could ever come close. There's always room for innovation. People take ancient concepts and find genuinely new and innovative ways to apply them every day. And we constantly discover new technologies to do things that simply weren't possible in the past. But it's up to us to do our due diligence and to make sure that we're not co-opting somebody else's ideas as our own. For the sake of respect, but also for the sake of not looking silly ourselves. It's amazing the vast array of things that people have thought to do with butter in the pursuit of delicious food. We're living in the best time for food. We have access to the foods which have made people happy on their best and worst days for thousands of years all around the world. That's really the message I want to convey as we explore all of these fundamental ingredients of cuisines from around the world. Foods that we've never heard of or even considered could exist, and even ones that we think sound disgusting have been the highlights of individuals' days, years, and lives for as long as we've been thinking, breathing, and loving humans. We have an unprecedented opportunity to experience the love and joy behind so many people's foods, and although we might have to break down some of our barriers to do it, it's an amazing journey and we're among the first to have access to it. So go out and try some Smen, some Niter Kibe, and even some yak butter tea, and reflect on the amazing stories of the people who have enjoyed these products for as long as they've been around, and just how lucky we are to have access to them. And join us again next week as we look into the wild world of fermented milk products. We're going to be looking at our favorite cheeses, yogurts, kefirs, and a whole set of things that we, myself included, may have never heard of. As always, if you have any questions, notes, corrections, ideas for future episodes, or whatever else, hit me up through the various links in the show notes, where you'll also find some of the sources I used in today's episode. I could never touch on every butter or milk product in these episodes. There are 
inevitably going to be many gaps. So if you have one that you really want me to fill, hit me up and I'll share it through social media. I hope that one day I can have enough time to make these episodes longer and more all-encompassing. But until then, I encourage you all to help me form a community around pantry staples. I've discovered some amazing online communities centered around things like fermentation and koji and other food-related stuff. And I'd love to have something similar where people can share and talk about their favorite staples. But until then, I'll see you all next week.